Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... You're gonna have your world rocked from a time before even crab. Imagine putting that in your dating profile, blue tits. In spring it gets it gets bigger. It's two, four, six, eight, ten. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. We are in sexy times. I like to think after a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit. <laughs> but she's gonna need a lie down, isn't she? <laughs> you've you've nailed it. You've got it in one. Roddy Shaw. Jack Baddams. Listeners, for my segment, I want to talk about an animal that I've literally just learned about. Okay. Always fun. Like I'd never heard of it. Not even its name. Okay. Like, it was so off my radar that until I saw this reference to it, I think it was on Twitter, X, the <laughs> artist formerly known as Twitter, um, this was not, I'd not even, yeah, it was not even on my radar at all. I think there's a good chance you might not have heard, heard of it either, and I'm fairly confident the majority of listeners will have not heard of this. Can we play a quick game of see if I can work out what we're on about? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, is it a vertebrate? Correct. Is it a mammal? Correct. Is it larger than a Labrador? No. Is it bigger than a rabbit? No. Is it like a shrew thing? We're small. We're small mammal. Is it from the tropics? No. Oh. But it's from a warm place. It's from a place that's got tropics. Arboreal or on the ground? On the ground. Oh, man, would like just... It's just like a new shrew. I hate it already. <laughs> it's not. It's not a shrew. Although in where it lives, it very much picks up that baton of small rodent type thing. Oh shit! Hang on, it's not some kind of ten wreck. No, but you're you're similar. You're similar vibes. I'll I'll tell you where we are. Should I tell you where we are? Is it Australia? We are in how many geese's favourite <laughs> part of the world, down under in nature's thunderdome. Correct. We're in Australia. Is it a marsupial? It is a small marsupial. Oh, like some kind of pygmy bilby. <laughs> it's called. I can hear you shouting it, listener. Antechinus. Antechnius. Sorry. Antechinus. And or Antechinus. Is that how it's pronounced? I think I might now suddenly be zeroing in on what we're on about. Antichinus or... Yeah, Antichinus is what it's called. Is this maybe going to talk about their sexual pastimes? It is. This is insane. Okay. Like, this is wild. So, listeners, Antichinus is 15 different species of all very small, varying from around like 12 to 31 centimetres, small mammals that go around eating insects in various parts of Australia. So far, pretty standard stuff. Australian versions of mice doing very mousy things. Yeah. So it's all pretty, like, above board, okay? Yeah. But the reason I want to talk about Antichinus is just like you've said, they've got, for a mammal, like, mental reproductive strategy. Sexy times. Yeah. Just mental. Yeah. So the different species have got really well-defined breeding seasons with females of most species coming into season related to the rate of change in day length. So wherever they are in Australia, it's the day length that triggers when Antichinus comes into breeding season and the females want to get down to it. And this is actually this was also really interesting in of itself because it's been really specifically worked out how the day length has to change. So for example, the brown Antichinus populations 
the majority of females will begin to ovulate only when the amount of light a day is increasing specifically between 97 to 117 seconds a day. There are just some PhDs where you do have to ask why. I mean, really. It was like, like down, like I just got a load of brand antichinus and was like working out exactly when the females were going to ovulate. 97 to 117 seconds a day is what the day length has to be increasing at. So the day length has to be increasing at between 97 to 117 seconds a day. Does day length not, like, I thought the days got, say, 20 seconds shorter or longer, like the same amount, like it was steps. So they got the same amount different each day. But no, is it actually it speeds up. Some yeah, days... it, in spring, it gets, it gets bigger. Oh, yeah, okay. because it's like, I think, is it February in the UK? I may be wrong. Something like February has the biggest gap. Oh. Like the... It, from when it gets light, from when it gets dark on the first of February to when it gets dark in the evenings on the last day of February, it's like the biggest jump I think between them. Oh. So there are days that there are months or times a year where it rapidly increases. That's cool. So the Antichinus really keyed into that ninety-seven to one hundred seventeen seconds a day. So that's mad to start with. Yeah. Um, it's so specific. The reason it's so specific is so that they can breed at the perfect moment. Um, so that they can time. They're having their young with the increase in food as spring arrives. We're all looking for the perfect moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not all of us are looking to the looking to the day length increase to find it. <laughs> Imagine putting that in your dating profile. No point trying. No point even trying unless <laughs> there's a 97 second increase in date length. Nothing gets me going quite like an extra hundred seconds in the evening, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in areas where you have multiple species of Antichinus all living together it's usually the big ones that mate first so the big female uh, the big species so the bigger species of Antichinus will mate first yeah and it's thought that the smaller species that also live in the same habitats may have evolved to breed later so that they're not competing with food with the bigger ones so that's just them you know when they get down to business the really interesting stuff is when it comes down to the actual Meat and potatoes, <laughs> the birds and the bees, because when Antigynus fuck, they really fuck. Ah, <laughs> uh. like after a bit of light reading, yeah, of the Australian Journal of Zoology. That's how uh, Jack winds down. It's not how I wind down, my friend. Because <laughs> let me tell you, I've read some very detailed accounts of yellow-footed Antichinus matings with such phrases as, as copulation proceeds, the flexure of the, in the penis disappears and the phallus then passes to one side of the scrotal pendicle. Well. <laughs> and also such classics as the onset of the active phase is heralded by remarkable sinuous lateral wriggling. Look, man, don't even talk to me about lateral <laughs> sinuous wriggling. Not at this time of night. No. Or um, the pendulous scrotum or whatever it was. Basically, after half an hour of courtship, a female is manhandled into position and to kindness handled into position. Um, and they get to the main event. Mating sessions routinely last longer than five hours, and in some species, up to 12 hours of mating for this tiny little rodent-sized animal. So they go, they go. They go. They really go. Yeah. During a short breeding window, females will mate with around three or four males, 
So, four males, 12-hour sessions, that's two days. God, she's going to need a lie down, isn't she? <laughs> You've got to set aside two days for that in the calendar. Yeah, but I mean, to, like, they're not, like, what else have they got? <laughs> you know, they're not they're not clocking in and out. You know, like, not... Sorry, I can't come around to the garden party yeah. because I've, that weekend is blocked up for pure sex. <laughs> yeah. Check the Met Office app. Yeah. And I know that that's when it's going to fall. So the males, on the other hand, they expand their home range and become active day and night. So normally they're nocturnal, screwing around, whatever, trying to avoid predators or whatever. But they, during the breeding season, they expand their home range, expand their territory, become active all hours of the day to try and mate with as many females as possible. They're so desperate to do this because it's quite literally the last thing they will ever do. Yeah. So male antichinus literally fuck themselves to death. Big declinus. <laughs> was that big dick inus or big declinus? It was big declinus. However, we will accept big dick <laughs> Linus. <laughs> so this is the mad thing about the Antichinus, which I'd never, like, well, like I said, never even heard of this animal, but this is the mad thing about it, is that males experience a mass mortality event after mating, whereas females will go on to raise the young, males just die, like, en masse. And in brown Antichinus, the average lifespan for a male one is 0.9 years, whereas the females, it's three. Don't know what to, don't know what to do with that. Just be glad it's not us. Well, yeah, okay. You know? Yeah. So why do they die? Because this is like, a, in mammals, this is a really unusual strategy. There's barely anything else that does this. There are other things that do this, which we'll come on to. Um, but in mammals, this is really, really unusual. The reason for their death is that during the breeding season, the males get pumped up on corticosteroids, which allow them to... Just absolutely smash their energy reserves. They're on the juice. <laughs> They're on the juice. They are. Boys. Yeah. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to all of our juiced listeners. <laughs> Leave it alone. Put yeah. down the needle. Because we are that demographic. Yeah. <laughs> um, For everyone pumping iron while listening to this. Um, so they... The males get pumped up on these corticosteroids, which allows them to like literally make use of every single energy reserve that they've got in order to maximize their reproductive effort. But this increase in steroids suppresses the immune system, causing them to suffer from parasites, stomach ulcers, liver abscesses, gastrointestinal hemorrhaging, and a number of other things which will kill them off. This is th that I thought they just shagged until they could not shag anymore yeah. and died which i guess is what they are doing but hearing that the actual ultimate cause of death is stomach ulcers and parasites yeah is a very grim i just you know they might just have an aneurysm mid thrust or something <laughs> and it'd be some kind of desperate blaze yeah. of glory but to think that actually when they get to the end of this they're just decrepit and literally yeah. falling apart so this is what i almost said when i said you know be grateful it's not us yeah Actually, there are far worse, on paper, there are far worse ways to go yeah. than dying having sex. But they, yeah, the gastrointestinal hemorrhaging sort of puts a new spin on it, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not here for that. I don't want my gastrointestinals hemorrhaging. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically, they just do an absolute Hail Mary, go for it. They're going to use all of their resources just to put into reproducing, and it kills them. Like, it just smashes their immune system. And all the males die. The real crying shame. Yeah. Pour one out. So 
This is called semilparity as a as a thing in biology. This is called semilparity uh, when an organism dies after a single mating season. I suppose like they can mate with multiple things okay you know after a single mating season the animal dies it's most famous in mayflies oh that's not what i was going to say but yes it is mayflies i will also accept um some other mass die off pheasants <laughs> <laughs> the great mass dying of the giraffes yeah exactly um think swimming some kind of salmon. Salmon. Yeah, salmon, salmon was the one I was going for. Yeah. Uh, not all salmon, though. Our salmon in the UK do return to the sea after, or some of them do re- return to the sea after spawning. The most famous ones are like the Pacific salmon, sockeye salmon, North America, when you think of the bears going after them yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they just all die when they've finished spawning. But yeah, mayfly is another one. Yeah. Well, in invertebrates, it's not unusual. In invertebrates, you think about butterflies and things like that. They just come out for specific times in the spring and summer. They mate, and then their eggs are the things that overwinter. So for invertebrates, it's not unusual at all. It gets more rare when you get into the vertebrates. But is it, in the invertebrates, and the case of the salmon, are both genders dying after the one season? Yeah. And then, but so the Antichinus are doing their own thing where it's just the males who are hail marrying it and yeah. the women are just soldiering on. <laughs> yeah. Well, they basically get, you know, if, if they live three years, they're getting three, yeah, that's it. Each <laughs> year. Three rounds of lovers. There's a different round. Mass die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, God, it must be pretty harrowing by the time you get to the yeah. end of it. <laughs> Although, if they're literally pinning you down and mating with you for 12 hours, maybe you're fucking glad to see the back of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, semilparity, as we've said, common in invertebrates. You mentioned mayflies, butterflies, cicadas, as we've famously spoken about as well. Big on fans. This, on this show. Big fans. But also some things like squid and octopus do yep. it too. Um, there are plenty of, obviously, annual plants, like we call annual plants annual plants, because they literally go through their whole life cycle in, in one year. But outside of fish, it is incredibly rare invertebrates, hence my complete surprise when I read about antichinus. Hmm. Just wait till you read about pheasants. <laughs> You're going to have your world rocked. <laughs> so, but as well as Antichinus, there is actually a, a couple of other members of their family of marsupials that also showcase this semilparity. Okay. So, once again, Australia being weird. <laughs> Love it, but never surprised. Well, wait until you hear the name of this animal. Well done, Australia, because this animal... Or these two animals, I will introduce you to our friends, brilliantly named by the Australians as Qual and Bandicoot. We're going to get on to Qual. Okay. But first, we're going to meet the common Wambenga and the red-tailed Wambenga. See, this is what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. This is why we love you, Australia. Yeah. So these are other small mammals that do similar things. Males disappear after the breeding season. However, if males are captured from the wild and isolated from females they can live for two or three years so yeah but like you always hear about some monk in a monastery who's like a <laughs> hundred and something right i mean that's just the wambenga equivalent of being some kind of buddhist scholar you know tending your herbs exactly yeah yeah <laughs> and but then if you take that celibate monk wambenga and introduce it to a female and give it the chance to mate, it mates and immediately dies. Look, man, the, the, what is it? The way, the path of the cloth, or, you know, to be a man of the cloth is <laughs> it's a thin line for wambengas, given the slightest opportunity, and yeah. they're jumping back into that rock and roll 
hedonistic we, lifestyle. We've all heard about people that went to all boys or all girls Catholic schools. My godmother joined a convent in like her 20s or something and apparently spent a few years there and then on deciding she'd had enough she walked out and I think my mum was there to like meet her as she came out and as she walked out my godmother pierced her own ears with a needle she'd found and lit up a cigarette that was her like (laughs) exit from the convent as the doors closed behind her or something so yeah so there we go you can take a common wambenga away from temptation but as soon as it's introduced to it it's yeah off the rails so yeah so the common wambenga and the red-tailed wambenga also do a similar thing but sticking with this family there is an animal that you mentioned uh, the northern quoll this is the smallest species of four species of quoll that are found in australia but i know my quoll yeah <laughs> this is a man learned in the ways of quoll qualified <laughs> um but it's still much bigger than most of the smaller animals so this is what's interesting about the quoll is it's like well i guess how big's a quoll it's like i've never seen one in real life but they're they remind me of little they're like really small kangaroo no wallabies aren't they i think they're no they're like more cattish yeah yeah i think they're like a like wallabies and kangaroos, I'm going to put in the two-legged world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've got four legs. No, like wallabies and kangaroos have four legs. Oh, sorry, but I yeah, mean, yeah. they are like yeah, yeah. two-leggedy. But I think all legs on a qual are the same. Okay. Same yeah. size. But they they've still got quite a, like a little rabbity, like a little kangaroo like face, like a little wallaby yeah. type face is what I mean. I think yeah. On a qual. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, is that the qual is much bigger than the wambengas and the antichinus. That is a sentence. That. <laughs> I've been trying to say it for years. Guys, the point of this whole podcast, <laughs> the point of the last five series, is that the Wambengas <laughs> and the Antichinus are just smaller than the Quals. <laughs> but once again, qual- in Quals, males seem to show a complete die-off once they've mated after their first year. So researchers found similar physiological degradation in male quals post-mating as they had in the antichinus. So they become increasingly anemic, they suffer fur loss, parasitic infection, uh, and weight loss, although it's not due to the same endocrine and hormone changes like it is in the other species. So they don't know exactly what is going wrong with the quals when they start mating, um, because they don't seem to have elevated cortisol levels, uh, and there's no real full explanation yet of why they suffer so badly, but quals do do the same thing where the males seem to mate once and then they die damn it's a real shame for them it is yeah i mean it's working for them as a species i guess so anyway what i was really interested in is like why has this evolved Mm -hmm. especially in mammals when loads of other animals don't have to go through this yeah but these guys do so it's i started reading into some theories and there's some interesting hypotheses One of them is that natural selection has allowed it to evolve because female ancestors of these species may have had really shortened mating periods to coincide with a peak abundance of resources. Okay, so you've got your female antichinus, your female qual, your female wambenga, and they've got a really short period of fertility to coincide with resources. Okay. Because this window is so small, the females of these species exhibit a reproductive pattern where it basically all of the females go into estrus simultaneously okay okay so your breeding season is so short it's so small that all the females are in season at one point okay yeah so selection would then favor aggressive males 
due to increased competition. Yeah. Because all the females are ready to go at one point. So basically, what you do is there's no point living for very long because the ultimate goal of everything is reproduction. The ultimate goal of everything is to get your DNA, your yeah. genes, into the next generation. Yeah. So what happens is because they're only in season, let's just say hypothetically for a week. Yep. For the males, it makes more sense to just go max out hard on that week, like fight off all the other quals, wambengas, etc., uh, and secure your lineage then, but to the detriment of the fact that you're not going to make it through to the following year. But the fact you're only a small animal means that actually it might not be very likely that you make it through to another year anyway. So you might as well just put all your eggs into the first mating basket you come across, which is your first breeding season. Yes. Okay. I was going to say, why not try and somehow, you know, like if you can, because, okay. You go all out on your week, you burn through everything, but then there must be some males who get less burnt than other males. Mm. So then wouldn't the males who do survive in slightly better shape, wouldn't they be in a position to go into the next year? But then when you said that actually these are all quite small mammals who might have a short lifespan anyway, then whatever, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and also then if you're uh, a small animal, okay, you might get through to the following spring, but then you're up against a whole raft of young bucks that are just like coming into their first breeding season and actually maybe it makes more sense just to you know go hard in that one and only time that you've got so that when i sort of read it that seemed to make sense um but it's still just a, a really really niche behavior um happening in these happening in these uh mammal species but i mean how long does a shrew live well yeah so then i was thinking about this and i didn't do any reading into this so this is all just us hypothesizing paddling in the pool of thought uh, but yeah i was like well surely you know if a shrew is because in birds things like blue tits yeah um their average lifespan is only a couple of years a vast majority of them will only see one breeding season yeah so you know like they're kind of doing a similar thing anyway yeah but that's what i mean like why isn't it called the thing yeah yeah because because i guess it's like it always happens in these guys. Mm, okay. In these guys, it, in these guys, they mate and die, and that always happens. In the right. other things, they mate, yeah. and they still might die within a year. But it's not mating related. But the two events aren't connected. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so then I just had a look at a couple of other examples of vertebrates that show, showed semal parity. Uh, I came across a few species of lizard, um, but one of them was really interesting. Uh, and just to finish. We're going to head away from the Thunderdome now. We're going to leave that place behind and go to arguably the most weird place on Earth. Iceland? That was genuine? <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not Iceland. From a biological perspective, the most weird place on Earth. A hydrothermal vent? Oh, no. I'm thinking country. Iceland? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've left Australia. Yeah. Madagascar. Madagascar. Okay. There we go. We are in the spiny deciduous forests in the southwest of the island of Madagascar to meet a very peculiar lizard, the Labord's chameleon. Never heard of the Labord's chameleon either. It was another animal I'd never heard of. Yeah, but like you've heard of chameleons. Oh, yeah, I'm aware of them. You just haven't heard of Labord. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which I think is not the same as not knowing another like whole animal yeah. like an antichitness. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair enough. So these guys, these are a decent size. You know, we're not talking like a little pygmy chameleon here. They're a mm. decent sized chameleon. And hatchlings emerge at the beginning of the rainy season in November. Okay, so we are in November. We are 
in Madagascar, southwest spiny forest, and it started raining. We're at the beginning of the rainy season. Out the hatchlings come. They reach sexual maturity in two months. When they reach two months of age, they mate and they lay eggs. So by now, we're sort of... Time's gone on. We're in the, re- uh, the rainy season's continued. By the beginning of February, they're already showing signs of old age. So they hatched in November. By February, they're already showing signs of old age. They're getting slow. They're losing weight. They're falling off of trees thanks to a weakened grip, etc., etc. Soon after that, every single one is dead. During the dry season, for a period of about eight to nine months, the entire population of Laborde's chameleons exist only as eggs. Only to emerge the following rainy season and live for another three to four months each year. So they are, they're doing the butterfly thing. Literally. They are, so they hold the record for being the tetrapod, so an animal with four legs, with the shortest lifespan in the world. At what? Three months? Four months? Uh, yeah, three to four months. Yeah. Not a great zoo exhibit, is it? <laughs> no. Well, this was the thing. That's why we haven't heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a blip on the calendar year. So there was, a whole, there was a whole thing about people going to Madagascar and trying to find this chameleon because they'd go in, you know, February or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they'd see them. But then you might go again in May or whatever and you couldn't find them. And it took a long time to actually piece together that every single Laborde's chameleon dies during most of the year. Like they literally just exist. Like you say, just like a butterfly that's on the wing for a couple of months of the year. Laborde's chameleons are only active in the rainy season. But it's mad to think... And it's not mad, because like you've just said, they do the butterfly thing, they do the grasshopper thing, they do loads of insects do this in temperate climates where they can't live all year round, they overwinter as eggs or larvae. But to think about something like a chameleon, it just seems quite vulnerable that every single one of that population exists as an egg somewhere. Or have we considered they are actually the best chameleon? And for eight months of the year, they are so perfectly camouflaged (laughs) that we just can't find them. As eggs. (laughs) I know, scientists, maybe you should get on that. Yeah. Maybe you should have a look. It seems too suspicious that the animal that can't be found for eight months of the year is a chameleon. (laughs) I'm just saying. In the most weird place on Earth. I'm just saying. Yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah. Anyway, so that's Laborde's chameleon, and that is the end of my little journey through animals that live fast and die young. Well, loved it. There we go. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Tish, and it is the horseshoe crab. Hello. Let's get to know our foe. Horseshoe crabs are those insane marine creatures that look like they've crawled straight out of the fossil bed. Despite their name, they're not actually crabs or even any sort of crustacean. They're arthropods, most closely related to spiders, ticks, and scorpions, with the oldest representatives of their family dating back 250 million years. They are, like, literally living fossils. They're insane-looking things. If you're struggling to picture a horseshoe crab, they're those little round shell-looking things that look like, I think, a horseshoe crab's look like a Roomba with an antenna sticking out the back as their tail. 
That's <laughs> like they're like a little circular, like the things that go around and hoover the remote. You know, the remote hoovers. That's what they look like. There are four living species, three of them found in Asia and one of them in North America, and it's the one in North America that we're going to focus on, the Atlantic horseshoe crab. That is found all along the east coast of the USA uh, and in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula as well. Females are typically up to 30% larger than males in this species, weighing up to almost 5 kilos, and including the tail, can reach about 60 centimetres long, with their carapace, so that's their body, the Roomba bit, being around 25 centimetres wide. So that's your tail of the tape there. They're completely jawless, but they do feed on mollusks, bits of fish, annelid worms, and whatever else they come across in the sand on the seafloor. They eat them by grinding up their food uh, with bristles on their legs before they put it into their mouth that's on their underside. One of the things they're most known for with the horseshoe crabs is their mass spawning events that take place in the shallows. Places like Delaware Bay is quite famous for it, which is coincided with the spring tides. Females can lay between 15,000 to 64,000 eggs when they emerge the adults in their thousands to spawn uh, in the strand line uh, in the shallows. The eggs and young are a key part of the food chain, being eaten by wading birds, sea turtles, and historically Native Americans used to eat them quite a lot. And here's a thing that's worth remembering when it comes to fighting them, because every year when they come to breed, where the waves lap on the shore, 10% of all horseshoe crabs die when the rough surf flips them over onto their backs, a position from which they cannot right themselves. Yeah, this might be one of the easy ones. So that's, I'm just going to drop that in there. Um, let's just touch on a couple of crazy features. I mean, horseshoe crabs, I am sure that in the lifespan of how many geese, we will come back to horseshoe crabs again mm. um, because there's some mad things, but just a couple of things to touch on while we are talking about them. They've got a total of nine eyes, two compound eyes on the top, five simple eyes on the carapace itself, two on the underside just by the mouth. Their tail also has a whole series of light sensing organs along it. However, despite all of their eyes, they still can't see very well. No. <laughs> I'm rejecting anything in nature that is going on a multiple of nine. <laughs> it's two, four, six, eight, ten. Yeah. You can't have nine eyes. Yeah. Like five simple eyes on the carapace. What's that all about? Just five. Where's the fifth one? <laughs> That's not symmetrical at all. And this is in the middle. No. Uh, the last wild thing I just want to mention is that an extract of their blood cells is a critical component in a test used to detect harmful bacteria in pharmaceuticals. To get hold of this, horseshoe crabs are collected and bled before being returned to the ocean. Presumably, I like to think, after a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit, <laughs> like you've just given blood. Uh, and it's believed that their blood volume uh, returns to normal after about a week or so, although sometimes there's like a 10, 10 to 30% mortality rate of the crabs that are bled for this pharmaceutical uh, material. So, Roddy Shaw, that's the horseshoe crab and some crazy little facts about this mad animal, which I think is up there with things that we've talked about on the podcast before, things that you fought on the podcast before, things like platypus, things like I.I., yeah. things like iconic animals of nature. The horseshoe crab is well within that league absolutely it is as you said it is bizarre it is iconic it is crab <laughs> but it's not it's not crab so yeah what's that about 
Don't know. Yeah. No idea. No. Yeah, more closely related to spiders, ticks, scorpions, arachnids than they are crab. Hmm. They're just, they're much older than crab. <laughs> they, from a time before even crab. Their larvae are called something like, uh, it's trilobite. Trilobite something is that what their larvae are known as. Well, they basically look like. Yeah, they look like trilobites. Trilobites, don't they? They're extraordinary things. And like, the fact that they're just like, that this is not an animal of like the deep sea. That yeah. This is just like something that you can be walking along the beach at Delaware Bay yeah. and just be flipping over horseshoe crabs. Yeah. And they, like mangroves as well, I swear, in yeah. like Southeast Asia, just like scurrying up the edge of trees and things. There is a mangrove. Uh, yeah, there's four species. One of them is called, I'm pretty sure, the mangrove horseshoe crab. And with you mentioning trilobites, mm. like they're definitely not a trilobite. No, I don't think so. Mm. No. From the stuff that I read about, it it links them all to, yeah, more modern day things like arachnids and things like that. But going back 250 million years, like when did the dinosaurs appear? 150 million years ago, something like that with the dinosaurs around. So they're old. They're old. Yeah. Are they the oldest still surviving thing? I don't know what things like. Like how old are snails? Yeah. I was going to say, like, other sea thing. Like, yeah. I don't know where seaweed would stand on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think seaweed's probably got some quite strong opinions. Seaweed just wouldn't have it. Seaweed would not have you leaving it out of the race. But then I guess what you're talking about here is it's not just because seaweed would be like saying, uh, well, trees have been around for a long time. But what we're talking about is not just that it's the group of animals that are here, but like really closely related to the thing that was before. But trees have been around a long time. Yeah. But sharks are older than trees. Yes. And horseshoe crabs have got to be older than sharks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So horseshoe crabs are old, old, yeah. old. Yeah. But what we're talking about is like, it's how close they are to the thing that was in the past. Yes. So it's not like, you know, you could say that mammals have been around for a very, very long time. But if the thing in the past looks nothing like the things now then that's not what's happened with the horseshoe crab. The horseshoe crab looks exactly the same. Like, it's just not changed. Which is pretty remarkable for something which dies if it gets on its back. <laughs> yeah, 10% of the population die by being flipped over in the waves. That is a huge evolutionary flaw, yet something they seem to have just B sailed past along. With, yeah. <laughs> with absolute aplomb. Yeah. Um, I've heard the pharmaceutical thing. That bit's insane. Yeah, there's more. There's, there would be way more to go into with that. I know. There is animal... Well... Yeah, okay. I have thought about doing that as a thing. And as you said, maybe we will. We probably will find a way to do it somehow. But for anyone who is really, really interested, I cannot recommend enough. Go to Radiolab and listen to their episode called something like Baby Blue Blood Drive. It is all about, it's, it's just on that and it is, it is crazy. We will find a way to do it with, yeah. uh, you know, a Jus suitable goose spin. <laughs> the jus de goose. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sprinkled with the jus de goose um but for anyone who's looking for some more facts on that because it's insane it's like there is no like if if you've taken medicine you have horseshoe crabs to thank like it's insane they underpin the yeah. entire pharmaceutical industry it's bonkers for one, one line that i read which i didn't follow up on was something like they think they might they think there might be something in their blood that is like a potential genesis of a new antibiotic like a brand new antibiotic yeah. that they're looking into yeah absolutely insane but it's time to destroy them. <laughs> and unfortunately, with that will come the collapse of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. 
because like you said, these are very easy ones and I've worked out exactly when I'm going to be fighting them Ooh. for the first time ever. I have an exact date for this okay. and I don't know exactly how this works, but I'm going to need to fight them in the past. <laughs> I'm going to fight them on the 9th of August 2013. Interesting. In Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Right. So we're quite a bit away from the sea. Yep. I'm going to fight them there, Jack, because I googled the biggest ever gathering of horses. <laughs> and on the 9th of August 2013, <laughs> in Ulaanbaatar, yeah. the largest horse parade ever happened, which saw 11,125 horses. <laughs> I see. Okay. Which puts us oh, wait, at go. four legs a horse. Oh my god, it's it's classic how many geese maths. <laughs> at forty four and a half thousand horseshoe crabs. <laughs> so uh, let me let me let me just get this straight. Your plan is to take forty four thousand horseshoe crabs to yep. Mongolia. Ten years ago. Ten years ago and nail them to the shoes of horses. You've you've nailed it. You've got it in one. <laughs> I like to think that actually if you did do that if you fitted horses with horseshoe crabs as their horseshoes they would just like tinkle around on little yeah. on like little feet you know like cartoons when somebody's sneaking and like, they get up on their tiptoes but their tiptoes walk like fingers yeah like I imagine the horses being able to sneak on their little crab, crab yeah. legs it will see participants from all and each of the 21 provinces of Mongolia oh I'd hope so at this such event. an event with the youngest horseman being two years and eight months old and the oldest being 90. So it's a very inclusive situation. It's very inclusive. I think it's the most inclusive uh, Fight. Royal Rumble we've had to date. But I'm sticking with 44,500 horseshoe crab at the Federation of Mongolian Horse Racing <laughs> Sport and Trainers event, 9th of August 2013. <laughs> That's how you beat a horseshoe crab. We are back with the Birder segment, which this week, Jack, is called... Well, we're going back to the listeners for this one, and Moomin Art on Instagram wants to call it A Birder in the App is Worth Two in the Bush. Thoughts, Roderick Shaw. Well, I don't want to besmirch our listeners. It's not quite picked up on the vibe, has it? <laughs> it's on the theme. I'd love to know what other listeners have. <laughs> In their defense, they do say, okay, so it might be a bit weak. But hey, maybe you'll like it. Yeah. So, self-aware. Self-awareness is good. <laughs> thank well, you very much for sending it in. Yes, thank you. And please do keep sending in your suggestions for what we can call the Birder segment. Yes. And to be completely honest and transparent, Summer Jacks were total horseshit. So, <laughs> you know. I'll accept that. There's my opinion yeah, on, on some of that. But no, we're back. So for anyone who doesn't know, we are sponsored by the app Birder. Birder is a fantastic nature bird watching app which inspires you to get outdoors, sends you reminders, nudges, tells you how much time you spent in nature that week and is a social networking community where you can post the birds you've seen, pictures you want identified and the community are fabulous and fantastic and help each other out and you can build your list of what birds you've seen. Mm. I've been using it over the summer, not just in the UK, because for anyone who follows our social media, you may be aware that Jack and I were very lucky to do some recording in Mexico. Mm, yes. It was actually the first day that we landed in Mexico that we spent a lovely morning 
bird watching together from the balcony and I was logging away happily on birder so anyone who follows me would have seen the birds that we saw. Mm. That all being the case and with our Mexican series coming up on the horizon birder's bird this week and for all of the next couple of weeks are going to be from North America and we are starting this week with Mm. the Rufus hummingbird. Oh nice. Now the Rufus hummingbird is a species of hummingbird. Yeah. But not just any species of hummingbird because it is found further north than any other species. So they are the most northerly breeding hummingbird reaching British Columbia and Alaska. Yeah, I this is I I wondered if they were the one that went to Alaska when you said the north this most breeding one. I didn't know its name, but I know there's one that goes to yeah, Alaska to breed. Yeah. So my first question for you Jack, mm. why can't we have them? I think this is one of the, you know, it's one of the greatest travesties in ornithology that the Americas are hogging the hummingbirds. (laughs) Like, share them out a little bit. We're not one for non-native introduced species on this podcast, but I could overlook that for hummingbirds. Do we have, is there something special about the flowers over there? Do they have longer flowers than us? No, no, no. We have... um, Not longer as in physically, as in... Yeah. flowering season no we have um species in europe uh, and the old world africa and asia that basically do the same jobs as hummingbirds so things like sunbirds but they don't they just don't hover they've just not evolved that like extreme flight ability that hummingbirds have so we've basically got things that do similar jobs but yeah they're not hummingbirds mm. well on bird at the bottom of the discover tab which is where because it's not just a bird watching app with the social networking side as i said But it's also a library of information. So there's a discover tab down in the bottom. And one of the things it can do is show you the migration patterns of birds. So if you scroll down, you can click there. Because hummingbirds spend their winter in Central America and Mexico, but only travel up to these northern bits, Alaska and British Columbia, like we mentioned, in the early spring to feed on flower nectar. Now, do you know the special thing about the Rufus hummingbirds migration? No, I don't think so. The Rufus hummingbird's migration is the longest journey made by any bird in comparison to its body size. Oh. So the bird, which measures three inches, a one-way migration is 78,470,000 times its body length. Okay, right. And these birds can live up for eight years. So 78,470 times two, one way up and one way back in a year. That's 156,940,000 body lengths, which over eight years is 1.2 billion body lengths worth of migration. That's cool. Now, all I've been saying there is body lengths. So let's put some numbers on that. To put it another way, that's a three-inch hummingbird flying a round trip of 7,430 miles a year. Wow. Or 11,957 kilometers for our metric friends. Yes. That works out at 59,445 miles in a lifetime. Right. Or 95,600 kilometers. For the metric friends. Yep. Which is London to the west coast of the USA for a bird three inches long. Wow. Wow. Okay. So all the way across the Atlantic, all the way across the continent of north america to the west coast it's a three inch bird flying basically halfway around the world yeah now let's put that into more perspective Mm. you and i are six foot four oh i was hoping for this so 78.7 million body lengths Mm -hmm. which is 
die one way yep. for the hummingbirds migration at six foot four is five billion nine hundred and sixty three thousand million seven hundred and twenty thousand inches which is ninety four thousand one hundred and twenty four miles or a hundred and fifty one thousand kilometers or a little under halfway to the moon what as a one-way trip so the hummingbird is doing a the- comparative one-way journey so going let's say north in spring from yeah. mexico to alaska yeah it is doing a comparative of me or you going halfway to the moon 39 percent of the way to the moon wow that's I mean. yeah <laughs> hats off to the hummingbird so if you want to find out where you can see these hummingbirds if you're over in the states they've been seeing in arizona they've got this whole migratory pattern head out there download birder click on the link in our insta description or the show description on spotify download birder get outside it's free and enjoy some nature okay we're here with a question jack madams okay from mary underscore amirin Okay. Sorry, I think I've butchered that, but there we go, on Instagram. And it is, you've been diagnosed with a rare disease. Oh. Which animal do you want as your doctor and slash or nurse? Right, okay. Uh, a rare disease. Do we want to narrow down a disease? What's our medical knowledge? Mine is pretty poor. Yeah, I say slim to none. So what I'm thinking is it's some sort of like, my mind just went to, oh, it's a rare tropical disease. Yeah, that we've picked up on a goose expedition. Yeah. Uh, and no one really knows what it is, maybe. Or only a handful of people know who it is. Mexican leprosy. Mexican <laughs> leprosy. Um, I think, okay, first thoughts is, if we're thinking it's some sort of tropical jungle disease, um, my first thought is apes would probably know how to deal with that. So are we enacting the law? Uh, yeah. You know, like orangutan witch doctor. Yeah, but would they? I think they would, because they're like, you know, all wise man of the forest, and they're all like, you know, with their big shaggy coats, and they'd be like, ooh, I'd know how to... Or do you think they're going to do go, like, down the Chinese medicine route, and it's all going to be bullshit? Well, this is kind of... The first thing that came into my head was what animals are used in medicine. Oh. But then I thought... I sort of skipped over to Chinese medicine, yeah. and I was like, well, that's all bullshit. Yeah. So, you know, like, oh, I'm going to use a pangolin to cure me. And it's like, no, that's it doesn't work. the whole point is they yeah. don't. So I think you want an animal that can administer a treatment. There I- are those toads you can lick and you <laughs> hallucinate. That's true. If it's hospice level, then yeah. <laughs> that at least you'd go out quite, you know, quite pleasant. <laughs> um, well, OK, well, let's, what are the qualities of a doctor? Bedside manner. Yeah. <laughs> Bedside manner goes against the animal that I was have also just thought of. When I said orangutan or something like that could administer treatment, I then thought of what animal can administer injections, venomous snakes, but replace the venom with the vaccination that you need to survive. Right. And then you said it needs good bedside manner, <laughs> and I immediately crossed off venomous snakes. Yeah. I think venomous snakes are very much the equipment Oh, of this doctor. Yeah, I see. Yeah, but I think the doctor needs to be caring, wise, calm—the opposite of a chimpanzee. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think we're we're at mammal. Yeah, or frog. Yeah, or 
owl. Aren't owls actually really dumb? Yeah, they're not smart. Yeah. But they are trusting and calming, I think, you know. That's true. But yeah, you're right. They're like not... you said, if it's hospice level and there's <laughs> no hope. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think you do want a you want a doctor with a degree of intelligence. Yes. So maybe that rules out frog as well. <laughs> <laughs> what about a binturong? Yes. Make your case. Okay, the case is as follows: no great apes. Yes. So then I want what's like a great ape, but not. And then I went big thing that lives in the trees, Uh and then I went binturong. Okay. And then we had this conversation. So so in that in that aura, we've got binturongs, we've got kinkajous, we've got couscous. They've big eyes. What about a slow Sloth, loris? Sloths, slow loris. Lemurs, bush babies. Eye eyes. Imagine, imagine just being like, oh, right, okay. Imagine the scene. You've been diagnosed with some like tropical disease. You're sat like all the other conventional doctors have, <laughs> have looked at it and they're like, oh, we don't know what it is. Like, we don't know. Like, there's only one guy that's yeah. going to know what this is. <laughs> and they're like, they look out the window and the sun's starting to set. And they go, just take a seat there will be here and then like all of a sudden so like imagine you've got the curtains in front of you and then the claw just oh, comes around God, it's like a and dementor it, and it opens and it's like dr I, I will see you now and then he just like comes up to you but he's all like he's all like friendly but erratic you know he's not like scary but he's like tapping on your head and he's all like oh what's going on in here and then he's like sniffing you a little bit and he's using his long finger to tap on your head and then he's just like and then all of a sudden he just like works out what it is because he's mad you know tropical doctor that lives in like the corridor down the way and they only bring him out when there's something that none of the others know i think there'd be uh like an ii can go one of two hard directions terrifying or friendly eccentric yeah so that's what i'm going for and i'm leaning strongly into friendly eccentric and the other thing with an ii thinking about it is wouldn't need a stethoscope it could just hear what's happening inside you that's true amazing hearing tap away at you and diagnose things that way yeah and if you've got something like a bot fly or whatever yep. in your skin, all it does is it just uses that finger to like draw it out and then eats it. And it's like, lovely. Yeah. So it's basically got built in sort of exploratory yeah. surgical equipment and built in uh, stethoscopes. And enough dexterity that if it needs to use another tool, i.e. a venomous snake, I feel like an eye I could get around, you know, an eye I could use an, a doctor's implement and if necessary. A soft, a soft tail. Yeah. To... Just pat you, <laughs> just pat you. <laughs> but yeah, a a erratic but nice bedside manner, and yeah, he's the one that can treat the things that nobody else can. In the way that Doctor House, in the show House, yeah. was the doctor who came out to treat the things no one else could, but he was an asshole. Mm. It's this similar kind of you know societal recluse yeah. type thing, but a bit that zany yeah. and eccentric a little bit dr nick from the sim just a dash yeah like five percent yeah. dr nick from the simpsons i'm thinking like um robin williams in jumanji when it's like yeah. sort of wide-eyed like yeah. ah, sort of thing but he like you know it's got best intentions at heart yeah okay aye aye yeah treat us <laughs> the doctor will see you now 
And there it is, another episode in the can done. Summer may be winding down, but we are not. That may have been cheesy, but I'm carrying on anyway. We've got three more episodes coming to you over the next couple of weeks before we start dropping our Mexican series. To stay up to date with all the updates, do go and check out our Instagram page if you haven't already, at HowManyGeese. And a huge thank you to everyone who sends us that money on Buy Me A Coffee. Also, go and check out Birda. It's free. Download it. Get it on your phone. Get outside and checking out nature and until next week we will see you then cheers everyone bye bye